you are at Founders FAQ, answers to all the possible questions of a founder. The most important thing for founders to research when they're trying to figure out if they have a real startup idea worthy of recruiting co-founders to is talking to the end customer. Who are the people that actually have this problem? Because a lot of startups end up solving or addressing problems that don't actually exist. You know, their founders aren't the core customer themselves. And so they're not actually sure what's wrong with the world. They assume there's a problem that doesn't exist and they build this whole solution that nobody ends up needing. And so the first thing that any founder should do before trying to research are there competitors in this space or, you know, what all the solutions are is just talk to who they think the end customer would be and see how satisfied they are. Welcome to Founders of AQ. Today, my guest is Josh Kalsin. Josh is a principal investor and head of content at venture capital fund Signal Fire. Previously, Josh was the editor at large for TechCrunch where he wrote over 3,500 blog posts about social tech giants like Facebook and Snapchat, as well as early-stage startups across verticals. Hi, Josh. Welcome to Founders of AQ. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, my, my first question is, is about founders. You have led hundreds of talks and met founders and VCs. Uh, my first question sure. is to you, how do you assess the founder's core assets, assets and the problem that she is solving? How do you, how do you assess it as a VC perspective or as a, your career perspective? Sure. So one of the most important parts of any startup is the grit of the founder. That's how likely are they to stick with the problem and tolerate failure before quitting. And I think this is what really keeps startups alive. So many startups, they don't actually fail because they run out of money or they're outcompeted, but because the founders just give up. And so when I'm assessing a founder, I'm trying to dig into what is the superhero origin story behind why they're able to keep up with this problem and why they're so determined to solve it. And so I love looking at some of the great superhero uh, stories of founders of old. And so one great example is Jan Kuhn, who was one of the founders of WhatsApp. His family moved from Europe when he was young, and when he got to the United States, he felt very isolated because his family couldn't afford to pay for long-distance phone calls back home. And so he decided he wanted to make a messaging app, which would let everybody stay uh, in touch with their family for free. And eventually, he signed the acquisition papers for the $19 billion buyout from Facebook on the steps of the welfare office where his family used to collect checks. He was so determined to solve this problem that plagued his own youth that he you know, he built one of the most iconic messaging and social companies of all time. Another great example is Jack Dorsey, who's one of the co-founders of Square. And when Jack worked in uh, his father's pizza place as a kid, he realized that his, his dad couldn't take credit card swipes for small slices of pizza because the fee on the credit card swipe was so high. And that meant that his dad either had to choose between the uh, losing margins and losing profits by accepting credit cards or missing out on customers and not fulfilling uh, what they really wanted out of a pizza place, which was making it easy to get a quick slice. And so he ended up inventing Square so that people, so that small merchants could take 
uh, credit cards with a uh, percentage fee so that that fee would be small if the purchase size was small, allowing merchants to take credit card swipes for a much broader range of small purchases. And I think when you look at these kind of stories, you find why these founders won't quit and why, you know, if they they failed uh, to raise funding numerous times or they had to pivot the products several times, but they still kept going and they didn't just quit. And so I'm always looking for that when I'm talking to founders. And the other big thing is the matchup between the founders' uh, superhero origin story and their expertise and the problem space. And so oftentimes I see founders will actually discuss their uh, their team before they talk about their problem and solution. And that doesn't make sense to me because the team's background is only relevant if I understand what problem they're trying to address. And so I always think that the best pitches and the, uh, the best way that founders can convince investors and the press to get interested in them is to break down their pitches into three steps. The first is a problem. This is where you discuss what's wrong with the world. What could be changed? You know, why is there room for an exponential innovation that's much better than what already exists? Because the status quo just isn't solving the problem or the, uh, and, then the second big part of it is the solution. And so this is why the product that the or service that the startup is offering makes people's lives significantly better. And that's usually either for a small set of people willing to pay a high price, like an enterprise SaaS subscription, or a wide range of people willing to pay a small amount in either microtransactions or uh, in their attention via ads. And so uh, this is where I want founders to talk about a, uh, the solution without buzzwords in a way that they could explain it to basically anybody and they would understand why there was a big pain point to solve and why there'd be a huge business opportunity in solving that problem. Then the third step is the evidence. And this is where I want to hear about why this is the specific team that's going to succeed here. So this includes the superhero origin story of the founder and why they're not going to quit, but also their experience from previous jobs uh, or the uh, the traction that they have, the you know the PhDs or the incredible talent that they have on their team, the A-list investors behind them, or just the traction they're showing that they already have customers or users lining up to use their product. And if you talk about the problem and the solution first, then all of that evidence makes more sense. It explains to me why I care about who is on the team, why I care about who are the investors, or why I care about what your previous job experience was uh, towards solving a problem. So that, those are the major ways that I like to assess founders is how clearly can they explain that problem, solution, and evidence, and what is the superhero origin story that proves they'll never quit. Mm -hmm. And at this point, uh, what do you recommend for the founders while, uh, for example, uh, a solo founder started the startup and uh, she's getting a new founder and how she'll make due diligence uh, before grabbing like two co-founders or three co-founders? What are the uh, most critical things to look at at the first place? The most important thing for founders to research when they're trying to figure out if they have a real startup idea worthy of recruiting co-founders to 
is talking to the end customer. Who are the people that actually have this problem? Because a lot of startups end up solving or addressing problems that don't actually exist. You know, their founders aren't the core customer themselves. And so they're not actually sure what's wrong with the world. They assume there's a problem that doesn't exist and they build this whole solution that nobody ends up needing. And so the first thing that any founder should do before trying to research are there competitors in this space or, you know, what all the solutions are is just talk to who they think the end customer would be and see how satisfied they are. If generally they feel like most of their problems are solved, maybe there's a little feature here or there that an existing service could add, there's probably not going to be enough of an opportunity for a new startup uh, to uh, break the network effects of that existing solution or the status quo. Um, but if the, the, if the end customer says, yeah, you know, I'm really not able to solve my problem with this, you know, there, or there's no real solution purpose built for this problem, uh, then, and they, and they said they'd be willing to actually pay for a solution or dedicate enough of their time that you can monetize this product in other ways. That's when you start to say, yes, we have an opportunity for exponential innovation rather than linear innovation. And the way that I divide these two is linear innovation is just a little step better than what already exists. And this is where the network effect of the incumbent and there's sort of the inertia of the user base is going to come into play because they're not going to move off and endure all those switching costs for something that's just a little bit better. But if you have an exponential innovation, something that's radically different and radically better than what already exists, you can convince customers to break away from their existing solution, rip out their existing software, and put in a new solution that you're creating. I, I get it. I get it. And uh, in that phase, like uh, while scaling startup, uh, we see the pivots as well. And the pivots uh, can lead a success, a huge success, giant success. Uh, how should the founder approach the pivots? Uh, what's the right time for the pivots? You see tons of startups uh, that made pivots and made so successful. What's the ideal way? I think the ideal way to do a pivot is there's one of two ways. One is to just completely change what the product it is that you're building while trying to keep the same customer in mind. And in this case, you get to keep all of the research you've done about what the customer's needs are. You're just approaching the solution in a different way. And a lot of times you'll be able to use a lot of the same resources, the same talent that you already have, um, and you just have to change sort of the surface level delivery mechanism for getting that product to the user or which of their specific pain points you're solving, but in the same problem space. The other way that I see really successful pivots happen is when uh, startups have built some kind of internal tool to make their process of building the original idea for their company easier. And so a great example of this is Slack. You know, they were a gaming company that had built this internal messaging tool so that their uh, engineers and design teams could collaborate uh, as they built this very complicated game. And when that game failed, they realized that all sorts of companies could use that same internal tool. And I find that this is a really successful uh, pivot strategy because the company is its own first customer. And so it understands intimately what's wrong with the existing solutions. And because they have the experience on the ground actually dealing with that pain, they know how to not only what to build, but how to prioritize the features uh, to ensure that you solve the biggest pain points first. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I totally get it. And uh, my, my next question is, uh, 
while founders are reaching out to VCs, especially on the pretty early stages like presidency, uh, what do you, what do you suggest for warm intros versus uh, crystal clear cold emails? What 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 are, what are your thoughts about it? Obviously, a warm intro is the best start to a discussion with a VC. It not only shows that you have the connections out in the, the world that is gonna, are going to help you to recruit a team or to convince partners and customers to join you, but it also shows a level of hustle that you cared enough about that VC that you hunted down that warm intro. And it means that you couldn't have just blasted a pitch deck to a whole bunch of different uh, VCs at once. It shows that you really cared about having that specific one potentially on your cap table. And I think that impresses founder, uh, uh, venture capitalists. Um, the warm intro also means that you're not just forcing the uh, VC to uh, believe in some stranger. There's some intermediary whose trust gets transferred to you. And so obviously the more uh, prestige or credibility, not just in general, but with that VC that the person making your warm intro has, the better. And it's always important to remember with intros that they should be double opt-in. Make sure that whoever's making that warm intro in, uh, emails the or messages the VC first. Ask them if they want an introduction to you before connecting you both. Never just bombard somebody with an unexpected in, uh, introduction. Uh, but cold emails can be surprisingly effective if you're extremely clear about what it is you're building. And First, that means not overloading a VC with too much information right at first. Don't make us dig through uh, a bunch of noise to find the signal. Tell us right away what that problem, solution, uh, and uh, evidence is for why you're going to succeed and be upfront about what stage you're at regarding your fundraising process. Do you already have a lead investor in and you're looking for people to join the round? Are you trying to figure out somebody to be that anchor uh, investor for a major round? Um, or are you actually getting started in the fundraising process months later, but you just want to get some uh, introductions early uh, to, to start getting some idea of what kind of metrics VCs would want to see for when you raise that round. And I think the, the, the most important part is to give that clarity as succinctly as possible. And then the, the VC can ask if they want more information. And that might be when you send a full deck or press releases or a much deeper description of exactly how your business and your metrics are, uh, are going. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I get it. And at the meeting, uh, rather than just the traction, traction could be re- really good. Uh, what, w- what will be the, uh, like top proof point, top skill points that we want to see in the founder? Yes, they have a really huge markets. The traction is perfect in the early stages, precise stage. But, uh, what else? What is, what do we want to see at the meeting? First, I want to see that uh, the founder has been doing the research to understand what the customer really wants. If the founders aren't close enough to that product space, if they're not the customers themselves, they need to be in constant communication with those customers. And that can seem inefficient, uh, especially as a company starts to scale. But it's that understanding of the problem space that defines whether a, a startup succeeds or fails. Uh, the next is the team that they're building. 
both in the sense of is the founder able to use their charisma and the, their vision to recruit other people to this cause? And if, if they can do great recruiting and close amazing recruits, you know, coaching people from other great companies, that's a great proof point that they're going to be a, a powerful leader going forward. Because if they can convince people to uh, to join early, it's just going to get easier and easier as the business gets better. And at the same time, I want to know what the skills are of those people they're recruiting. And ideally, they're building a robust and well-rounded team. If the founder doesn't have tons of sales experience and the company is going to be dependent on a sales process, that should be one of the first major hires. And I want to see that companies are willing to dedicate significant options pools to uh, you know, to finding those uh, uh, those early employees that complement the founder's skill sets. And ideally, you have a lot of those skills peppered across the founder set because these are the people that are going to have the highest uh, incentive to stick with the company and work as hard as possible to make it succeed because they're who's sharing in its upside. And so I want to know that those people are truly elite and that their skill sets complement each other. You know, somebody who has great business skills, can pitch, can recruit, Somebody who can, uh, who has great engineering skills, you know, someone who can be a CTO or train a future CTO, uh, to, to handle all those technical issues. And then ideally somebody who is great in the sales process, business operations, uh, and can really oversee the day to day operations of the business while the engineering and, uh, and CEO, uh, co-founders focus on those other elements. So having that well-rounded team is so critical because otherwise you end up with startups unable to make progress in some of the most fundamental areas and they burn cash because they're moving too slow. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I get it. And um, maybe not on the pre-seed or seed stage, but at the uh, Series A stage, should founders spend a time to select the right VC partner before raising to run to know him or her well, because at the end of the day, she's getting into the board. Uh, what do you think about it? And when you choose your early VCs, you're basically getting into a marriage with these people. It is going to be extremely difficult to unwind that relationship. So you want to make sure that those VCs not only have your best interests in mind and have skills that they're willing to share and value that they can provide, but that they'll actually follow through with providing that value. What we often see is that VCs talk a big game about all of the connections that they can make for people or, you know, how their network and platform teams can help a startup. And then they never respond to their emails, you know, they, and they basically ghost the startup and they pretend like they don't exist. And especially if the company starts to perform poorly, they just immediately write them off and stop giving them help. And so it's not just important to have, you know, a prestigious VC or one that has great uh, value adds to offer, but that actually will deliver them to you throughout the life cycle of your uh, startup and they help you to make sure that you raise that next big round. And so VCs that aren't just uh, great in themselves, but have great connections to other um, upstream venture firms that can help uh, you to continue to grow as you move through the to bigger and bigger stages is very, very important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I get it. And my last question is uh, for the for COVID process. Do you think uh, co- after the COVID or during the COVID, uh, it grabs more competitors to the SF ecosystem? And um, should startups really settle, settle down in SF? Or uh, what do you see it? How uh, the VCs 
investment thesis are getting changing in this process. What do you say about it? Obviously, so much of the uh, the, the fundraising process and all uh, interconnection between the startup community has moved online due to COVID. And so having your entire team geographically centered in such an expensive space as the Bay Area is likely not efficient uh, or practical for startups that are trying to scale. You know, it might be valuable to have a part of your team um, more uh, co-located, especially having the um, the the product and fundraising teams uh, in the Bay Area where they may still need to make some in-person connections eventually or having that sort of the, the density uh, of interconnections between them, their networks and those VCs can be very important. And so what we've seen is this, uh, we've seen startups adopt the strategy known as the mullet where basically they put the business in the front and the party in the back. It's like an old hairstyle. And what that means is they keep the, the product team and the, the CEO, some of the executives and whoever is doing the fundraising, they'll stay in the Bay Area where they can make those connections, where they can get that sort of osmosis of incredible ideas and where they can keep their eye on, uh, on major trends and competitors. And meanwhile, they'll have their sales, engineering, uh, customer service and other uh, teams located somewhere else where they can uh, where they might be able to afford great talent at cheaper prices and that way they can extend their burn rate and because everyone's collaborating online anyways it really doesn't matter where you are especially if all you're doing is working with other members of your own team Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I get it. Yep. Uh, these are all my questions. Uh, thank for uh, coming to Founders Epic, Josh. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is exciting. Congratulations on your book. Thank you. By the way, Founders FAQ is in pre-order and it covers the answers to all the possible questions of a founder in a startup journey, whether revealing life-saving principles for the startup survival path, building A-plus teams, creating an evolving machine, setting up a need culture, or interpreting the true path for the fundraising. You can pre-order it from foundersfq.com and you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook.